We're thankful to be able to assemble on this Lord's Day morning, this first day of the week, this day set aside and commanded by the God of heaven that we should come together to not only participate in those acts of worship as an encouragement to us, but most importantly, to also honor and reverence Him in the ways that He has commanded. It's a delightful honor and privilege we each have, and as we give thought to the means of this, perhaps we can be encouraged and edified in those things indeed of the most holy faith. As you know, we have been for some weeks giving thought to various cultural matters and issues that from one time or another often come before us. Perhaps you and I encounter individuals who participate in these activities, and our desire is not to look at them in any other way but merely to ask what the Bible has to say about them and to in fact give the earnest consideration that, the, that God would have us to do. This morning as we open this lesson, perhaps by way of remembrance, we can also recollect that to this point in our brief series of lessons, we have given thought to dancing, at least in the way in the modern way it's described. We also gave thought to our appearance in terms of what we wear and our dress. And finally, on the most recent occasion, last Lord's Day morning, we asked the question about gambling. We found in each instance that though the world so often encourages these, that God has different things to say and in fact condemns them. Today, as you noticed in the title of the lesson, we also will give thought to another very prevalent and very common activity, the social consumption of alcohol. And in that way, we also again will just merely ask the question, what does the Bible say about that? It is not our goal or wish to ask what scholars think, what others ask, or even what our friends and neighbors may think, but only what does God have to say about it. In Isaiah the 28th chapter, a particular phrase that I think is a useful one is merely to remember this. When God through Isaiah warned the children of Israel, He said that the prophets and priests even were guilty of erring in vision. That means they stumbled in judgment. They participated in something that not only was an erring matter, but it was a great influence of harm. The context indicates that that to which they were engaging was strong drink and wine. May I suggest to you there seem to still be many in our world who err in vision in the light of that. And today, over the next few moments, let's give our consideration to this matter of shall we drink alcoholic beverages? As we do that near the bottom of that slide, some observations might well be appropriate. Obviously, it is really the vice of millions. There are so many in our world who freely imbibe in beer and whiskey and alcohol and any number of other so-called alcoholic beverages and do so without the slightest consideration of conscience, the slightest matter of guilt. They think it's fine. And they would even freely encourage others to enjoy it. That vice of millions, of course, can also be said to be the accomplice of any number of other things such as indecent behavior, murders, thefts, robbery, sexual sins, and many other things. And yet, believe it or not, despite these initial remarks, there still are many that would defend it with all the encouragement that they have that it is something that's fine as long as it's maintained in moderation. Our question today should be this. What does the Bible again say about this activity as we begin, some further observations might be in order as we, in fact, continue on the next slide. I would ask you to notice that the liquor industry 
of course, is an exceedingly large industry. Many companies producing tens of millions of gallons of alcoholic beverages every single year. And you and I easily appreciate how common it is to have it if you want it. Our stores, a whole aisle at Walmart, it seems virtually so, is filled with it. Even other stores, such as the Dollar General store, you can buy your beer there if you like. The point is it is so easy to obtain it if one has a desire to do so. It might be fair to note that as one makes mention of those more common things like beer and like whiskey and like various other versions, might we also notice in more modern times it's also known to be in the form of various coolers, fashionable drinks, if you please, that one can purchase and use. Maybe we've said enough already. This is so common, and many give so little thought to it, whether it be radio or other commercials. Maybe it's to be noted now we come to the cold, hard facts of the case. No one knowledgeable of the matter would doubt that alcohol is a drug. Simply asserted, it is a drug. Even the FDA admits it. Ethyl alcohol is, of course, that active drug that is in alcoholic beverages. And thus, when one gives thought to defending beverage alcohol, one's defending drugs, plainly and simply. It, in fact, is somewhat shocking to give thought to all that's involved in that existence of ethyl alcohol. But maybe we now come to the bottom point on that slide. There are many views that one might find as it relates to alcohol. There are some who will openly claim the only reasonable thing of God is to abstain from it. One cannot participate in it in a social way because such is in fact sinful. There are also those who are on the other end of that spectrum and say one can freely partake of it. In fact, the Bible doesn't condemn it, they say, except in excess. If you drink a little bit in their mind, that's fine. For them, have a beer when you go home on Friday, not a problem. The only issue they might have is if you again become completely inebriated, intoxicated to the point that you behave shameful in a public way. There are still others who say the issue is not even a material one. It doesn't matter. God doesn't care. We might ask today, what saith the Scripture? Romans 4 verse 3. Does God care? If He does, what does He say? And how does He say it? And what might be concluded from it? It is with that in mind that let's begin our saga in the early days of the Old Testament. In fact, we find that alcohol, beverage alcohol, is a rather old and sad reality, isn't it? As far back as Genesis, the ninth chapter, we encounter there that man, Noah, who emerged from the ark with the protection and character that God had allowed him to understand. We notice that he, in verses 20 and 21, had a vineyard and he partook of that which was to be found in it. Beverage alcohol was that of which Noah partook, and we notice he shamefully laid naked in his tent. We learned something. Did he err in vision? He absolutely did. He acted in this way so far beneath the dignity and so far beneath what he should have been behaved as. Ten chapters later, in Genesis the 19th chapter, there it was a lot on the stage of biblical history. And we remember that when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, that Lot and his daughters ultimately escaped. But we remember also that they 
got lot drunken and had sexual relations with her own father. Incest was committed, and yet under the umbrella of alcoholic inebriation. Lot erred in vision, you see. Behaved in this way that was shameful, in a way that should not have been done. And we notice beyond that, many more things might well also be noted. We might well continue our study in this way. It would in fact be an extremely lengthy lesson if we read every verse that makes mention in one way or another of these alcoholic beverages, in essence wine in one form or another. But as one gives thought to that, we now have to ask this question. And this has been a point of some confusion throughout the centuries. In fact, there are many words that are translated in one form or another that seem to touch this subject. No less than 24 of them. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek words. Our issue as we look at them is to note this. Some of the verses in which this description is found without question, give it God's approval. It is found in a positive note. Such verses as Psalm 104, verse 15. Such verses as Isaiah 65, 8 and Zechariah 10, verse 7. All of them, without any question, state that it is a blessing from God and that wine is something to be appreciated as a gift of God. But there are other verses that without question condemn this occasion of wine. That is to say, they show forth the very matter of God's disapproval of it. Such verses as Proverbs 20, verse number 1. Proverbs 23, beginning in verse 29. Isaiah chapters 5 and 28, as well as Habakkuk 2.15, just to note a few. We immediately then ask this question. If there are some verses that indicate that God approves it, and other verses that indicate that God disapproves it, how are we to interpret this? May we suggest this. We must look somewhat carefully at the context. Which kind of wine is God approving? Which appearance of it and which usage of it is God actually giving His approval of? For instance, if you look at Psalm 104 verse 15, on that occasion, we read a particular set of verses that describe the blessing of the grass for the animals, the blessing of the water and rain for the animals, the blessing of the capability of food for the human family. But in that same context, we read that wine, again, is a wonderful blessing from God. What kind of wine was, was that, I wonder? Was it the alcoholic version or was it what you and I would call non-alcoholic version? based on the natural occurrence of all the others, the rain, the grass, the other things, one would seem to conclude this too is a naturally occurring thing and would thus have been a non-alcoholic variety. In Isaiah 65 verse 8, clearly affirmed that this, God said, was a blessing for mankind. Which kind of wine was it? The text defines it. It was the one found in the cluster. Grape juice, if you please. And here it is affirmed as a blessing from God and one that should be openly understood that way. In those two passages, clearly the kind of wine identified as the one God approves is the non-alcoholic version. The one that doesn't lead to this shameful behavior. The one, again, that occurs more naturally. Beyond that, look at some of these others that helps us note this point. As we then look at the various verses, 
we mustn't assume that just when the word wine appears that it's always alcoholic. For again, some of them are not, like the Isaiah 65 passage. There the wine was clearly the one in the grape, and it was the non-alcoholic version. Isn't it true then, based on all of that, the warnings that follow from it, let's notice which kind they would have been referencing. Which kind of wine is the one God warns never to participate in and not to partake of and not to use in a social way? Well, first of all, in Isaiah 28, verse 7, whatever kind of wine this was, it was the one that made a man vomit in shame the things that he had taken in. So what kind of wine naturally leads one to that kind of rather disgusting behavior? Obviously, it's the inebriating kind. A person gets so drunken, the headache, the hangover happens from it, causing you to throw up. And this kind of wine, God says, that's the one that is an erring in vision. And at this point, can't we notice that whenever then you and I participate in such things, it not only harms our influence, it really is an affront to the very beauty and power of what God has fashioned and made us to be. Beyond that one, Look at Proverbs 20, verse number 1. Perhaps a passage that you and I can easily understand as we listen to the writer make this statement. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. We immediately notice deception is involved. How many labor under the delusion that this beer is a fine thing. It helps me ease from the problems of my day. Friend, they're still there when you come out of your hangover. It hadn't taken any of the problems away. All it has done is dull your senses so that you can't rightly judge and take care of the problem. But not only that, wine is a mocker. In fact, you'll notice in the Hebrew that word identifies to the thought of an abomination. This is an abomination in the sight of heaven. God does not like it. In fact, it is an affront. It's hateful to him. And yet, what is under discussion? Wine and strong drink of some variety. This kind of wine, you see, is that intoxicating version. And he goes on to say it's a brawler. You'll notice that this is something to be avoided. Something that has no part in the life of one interested in doing God's will. Something that has no part in the life of one desirous of heaven and living godly. But at this point, in light of that statement, let us come to the New Testament briefly. We understand well that this Old Testament presentation, though wonderful it is to learn from it, we might be a bit interested to ask in the New Testament, what does God say about this? In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse number 18, I would invite your attention as we read that. It's a rather brief passage. As Paul addressed the church in Ephesus, he simply said, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And almost immediately, one couldn't help but wonder and question. We're told, be not drunk with wine. So in what way does that word identify drunkenness? Does that simply mean that one can drink with a bit of moderation, but yet just not become totally so inebriated or intoxicated? Is that what that means? We would, of course, find some help as we look at the meaning of the original Greek word. And I have, in fact, written one of the Greek lexicographer's definitions. 
if you consult a gentleman like Thayer or perhaps Young and the ways in which they define that original word, here's one of the presentations common amongst them. To begin to be softened? In other words, it's descriptive of a process. To begin to be softened, not as if it's a final state, not as if it's merely that final configuration, but rather that whole process from the first drop all the way to the last. I would ask each of us to notice carefully, if that be the meaning of that word, and all the context would seem to say that it is, then that means this is not merely something to be had in moderation, but rather something to be completely and totally avoided as a social thing to be consumed, to begin to be softened. And as if that isn't enough, you might notice I've identified that in the following way. If it's the descriptive of this state, a person who has had a little wine is somewhat drunken. Now, the person who has had more wine is more drunken, and the one who has had a lot is a lot drunken. But all of them, in one way or another, are drunken. The FDA has, in recent times, come to appreciate the fact that even one drop of blood per volume of a thousand drops of blood is enough to impair the judgment, at least minimally. Friend, if that be true, then what is it Paul is here describing? Even the slightest amount leads to a state of drunkenness. And notice the ways that drunkenness is condemned. In Romans 13, beginning in verse 13, when Paul was addressing the church in Rome, he said, let us walk honestly as in the day. And then he listed six things in which we were not to participate. And of them there are such things as strife, such things as chambering and wantonness, but notice, second in the list is drunkenness. Let us not be given to this, he said. But in verse 14, next verse, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. To the church in Rome, if drunkenness is a state, then from first state to last, don't be involved in this. Opening drink to the final one is condemned in the Word of God as a social matter, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul made a list of a number of things of which the church in Corinth had in past times been guilty. Such things as sexual sin, fornication, and of that list he mentions drunkenness. And isn't it wonderful in the next verse, in the next verse he says, Such were some of you, but now you're sanctified, now you're washed. They had been cleansed from that sin of drunkenness because they had appropriately repented and had left that activity far behind in their past. Today, although there are many religionists who would openly say moderation is fine, and they may even have beer in their refrigerator at home, they are deceiving themselves. God doesn't approve it, either in public or in private as a social matter. It is a sinful thing that harms our influence, and it, of course, is an open thing condemned in the Word of God. We ought not thus try to justify it. We ought not thus try to make light of it and because one or more of our friends do it. It's a wrong thing. And just as surely as those other sins in 1 Corinthians 6 will condemn one to a devil's hell, so too will drunkenness in any form and in any amount. We must be cautious and careful then as Christians to ever live in that way that God has approved in His Word 
freely availing ourselves of the blessings He has given, but avoiding in all ways that which He has condemned. In Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, we notice again a number of things often called the lust of the flesh. As these works are therein described, again, a number of things and included in the list is drunkenness. And Paul is quick to say, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's strong language, isn't it? That's language that cannot be misunderstood. Those guilty of any of them, so might we ask this. In that list is sexual sin, so can a person commit a little sexual sin and be fine? Can a person have a little moderation in fornication and go to heaven? If you can do that, then maybe you can also have a little wine and go to heaven if it's alcoholic variety. But we understand fornication is condemned in all forms and so too is this drunkenness in all of its forms. God's Word is very clear upon that, isn't it? And the strength and power of it is that which the inspired apostles and these inspired penmen wrote so long in the past but which is still so needful today. As the centuries have passed, men are still given to partaking in these alcoholic beverages, aren't they? They were guilty of it in Galatia, guilty of it in Corinth, guilty of it in the people to whom Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, and of course here in modern 21st century America it is still so prevalent. God's Word though is timeless. What God condemned then, He condemns now. What God, in fact, considered abomination then, He considers abomination now. As you give thought to how all of this is presented, might we ask some of the other things that the New Testament urges us to understand. One of the things that alcohol does, and we each know it well, ethyl alcohol impairs the capability of judgment. At first, of course, with only a little bit of ethyl alcohol, it impairs it a little. But as one drinks more and more, it impairs that judgment more and more. One perhaps at this point could ask, what does God's Word have to say about one's ability to make judgments and one's ability to draw fair conclusions and one's ability to analyze the evidence and to from that draw conclusions as to how one should conduct oneself? No wonder the Bible so often gives us this command, Be sober. Now, I understand today we use that word sober to mean not totally drunken. But that's not what the New Testament word means. That word in the New Testament means to drink no wine. And I'm quoting that verbatim from the Greek lexicographers. And you can appreciate with me that in all those places that command is given, that the context encourages us to note God wants us to be able to reason, to be analytic, to think to draw conclusions, to weigh evidence, and to act accordingly. How then would He look upon us if we purposefully impair that ability by drinking alcoholic beverages so that we can't think clearly, so that we act foolishly, and so that we say, do, and think things that are ungodly? Well, of course, God would frown upon such. And you'll notice in these verses, every one of them have those commandments in which we are commanded not merely urged, not merely suggested, but commanded to be sober, to have our proper faculties of judgment, to conduct ourselves in a way in light of that judgment. I would suggest to each of us, alcohol runs completely against the grain of that 
and thus to socially drink, impairing that judgment purposefully, is to dull the powerful senses of intelligence that God has given us, making us behave like an animal, or perhaps even worse. And to do all of that, doesn't it challenge us as we come to the bottom? To note one more time that it is an erring in vision when we give in and partake or endorse this in one way or another. But Peter, however, joins in this refrain as well. As we come to this listing that Brother Colonel read for us earlier, in 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, I would urge you again to notice the rendering and the way in which this reads so directly. The fourth chapter of 1 Peter, beginning in verse number 3. Paul addressed these words, or rather Peter addressed these words to a group of individuals who of course were suffering mightily beneath tribulation and difficulties in that first century era. But to them, he made note of some things that they had done in former days in life, and this is what he said. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? And pausing at that point, isn't it interesting in verse 4 that the situation to which Peter referred is so similar to the situation today. Let's note that wording again. Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them. When Peter wrote this, there were individuals in the community who it seems freely partook of the things of which Paul had spoken, like excess of wine, revelings, banquetings. And it says they think it strange you won't do it with them that you by virtue of conscience and what God has said refuse to participate in this and they think it's strange. They can't understand what's wrong with a little beer. What's wrong with a little Jack Daniels? Take it at your house. Don't let anybody know. It won't hurt you. Peter said they think it's strange that you won't partake of it with them. Maybe you or I have been in a position where someone will insult us. They offer us a little bit of wine a little bit of alcoholic beverage, and we kindly refuse and say, no, thank you. And we maybe even urge them not to do the same. And yet they laugh at us, perhaps mock us, insult us, and proceed to happily partake of it anyway. They think it's strange. You'll notice these Christians were admonished, you be steadfast, strong, and earnest in your devotion to the Lord, and do not, in fact, in weakness, give in to these things that they may assert and encourage you to do. What were these things, verse 3? When we walked in lasciviousness, and then he mentions lusts, and then he mentions excess of wine, and then the last two, both revelings and banquetings, and finally, abominable idolatries. Now, of those six things, our interest is really principally three of them. Might I ask us to notice... What would be these three that are listed as excess of wine, revelings, and banquetings? Admittedly, those words, at least the latter two, are rather unfamiliar to our common 21st century speech. We don't usually use the word revelings or the word banquetings. I've taken the liberty of again using the meaning of the Greek text or the word that's there, and here's what that means. 
excess of wine is probably the easiest. To bubble over with wine, that seems to refer to those who had taken in a great deal. They really were almost totally inebriated, perhaps. They were bubbling over with it. Peter says that's condemned. He asserts that that perhaps was a former walk of life, but now they think it's strange that you won't do it. But then he goes on to list the next one, revelings. The meaning is feasts and drinking parties, perhaps with the involvement of various kinds of carousing. You'll notice again, this was something that you no longer are doing because they think it's strange you won't do it with them. This too, the kind of drinking that was involved apparently was a shunned by the God of heaven and it was something condemned by Him. I wonder what kind of drinking that it was. I doubt it was milk. Don't think it was soft drinks. I believe, as the definition would suggest, this was that kind of thing you and I could imagine at a bar. Well, there's all kinds of various lustful activities, carousing, if you please, things that go on by way of action and language. He said that's condemned. But then he lists a third thing, this matter of banquetings. An even more unusual word, but yet this is what it means. A drinking or drinking party. That word then seems to have direct reference to the imbibing of something. And Peter says, they'll think it's strange you won't do this with them anymore. We notice this involves what we would call moderation. And he says that too is condemned. Whether you're bubbling over with it or whether you've had a little, that's a condemned thing and thus we should not have an interest in, nor a way of going about taking in these alcoholic beverages for social consumption. God's Word condemns them completely, thoroughly, and entirely. And isn't it interesting that either Old or New Testament has led us to that conclusion? In fairness, as we draw this lesson near its finality this morning, one final thought. In 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, we have this rather broad set of statements, and we'll only quote two of them. He said, Prove all things, hold to that which is good. Now might we ask, as one looks at this matter of alcoholic beverage, what God's Word has said about it, could one in fairness describe it as good? Could one describe it as that which lifts the spirit to a more godly state? lifting the character of one's life and person to a state more pleasing not only to God, but in the eyes of influence of others? And of course that answer is no. And as we prove what's good and hold to it, might we appreciate that does not include alcoholic beverages for social consumption. And then finally, just a few verses later, verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. Does evil as a fruit go along with this, which is alcoholic beverages, for social consumption. And it does, doesn't it? Might I ask, as we then make a conclusion set of statements to our lesson this morning, beverage alcohol, oh, how common it is, so easily and freely available, and yet we have learned that despite that fact, the Word of God in rather plain character opposes it urging in the life of those who would be godly to have no part of it, not only to not encourage it in oneself, but certainly not in others. Habakkuk wrote it in words like this in Habakkuk 2.15, Woe to him that giveth his neighbor drink. 
a woe was pronounced upon that one who would offer and give to his neighbor something to drink, this something being an alcoholic beverage. Today, as freely available and as often available as this is, it takes a recognition and a concerted mindset to ever remember that it's evil. It's the devil's beverage. And thus, may we appreciate that thought and help remind ourselves always how much harm our influence is when we partake in it and how much, of course, it brings us down in the life before the God of heaven. Repentance is necessary if one has been guilty of that. And this morning, as we give thought to ourselves, not only our lives, but those whom we know, maybe we, may we be reminded of just how plain God's Word is concerning these matters. Today, sin is that which the Bible condemns, isn't it? Not just drinking alcoholic beverages, but sin in any form. And may we appreciate that it's for sin that Jesus went to the cross. Though He had no sins, all of us do. And He died there, shedding His blood that you and I might be forgiven of that sin. To that drunkard, Jesus shed His blood. For the person who so freely partakes in this, Jesus shed His blood. Some of those Roman soldiers and others in that area may well have partaken, and for them, Jesus shed His blood. We mustn't look on drinking as just some minor trivial sin. It's more than that because it is sin, and no sin is little. No sin is trivial. It's all major because it separates one from God, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. This morning, are you and I, as we examine ourselves in the fold of God, are we faithfully in compliance with His commandments? Are we living faithfully until death? If we find ourselves today separated from Him, there's an opportunity to be afforded in a moment when, if your matters have been public, you can come before others and before your, the God who loves you, confessing those errors, repenting of them. If you've never become a child of God initially, then you must attend to the matter of confession and baptism. And we would be honored to assist you in that. If you have become a Christian, however, but you at this point are not faithful and you realize that fact, then have the courage to come before God, admitting those mistakes, those sins, confessing them and repenting of them, and He, in joyous character, will forgive them. This very day, if you need to respond publicly to the, call, to the gospel call of invitation, there will never be a better day than this one. Why not today? And why not now? As together we stand and while we sing.